0: Well, good evening, everyone. Thank you for being here tonight. And we are uh, continuing, I should say, our study of the mothers of Israel. We're on number five, and it's the first time we're studying two people together. There's a couple of reasons for it. Number one, they're sisters, and they have a common background. But number two, they were sisters who married the same man. Um, We're going to be talking about Rachel and Leah, and the message tonight revolves around the idea of dealing with pain. What we're going to find is two women, each of whom had a different set of blessings, and each of whom had a different set of circumstances that were painful to them. So we're going to talk about these women and how they dealt with pain, and maybe in the process, whether you're male or female, you may be able to wrap your head around dealing with difficult situations. We're going to talk about Rachel and Leah and begin by reading the text out of uh, Genesis 29. We're going to be reading a fairly long passage of Scripture but it will help us set everything in place. Father as we open our heart to your Word we pray for your anointing as I speak and anointing as the congregation listens Lord. We both of us, both the teacher, and the learner need the help of the Holy Spirit to grasp your truth. So we ask you to come tonight, let that happen, and let uh, the riches of your grace fill our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat> then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the sons of the east. Now, you remember last week we talked about Rebekah, Jacob's mother, and we talked about the issues of... Um, of not really realizing the, the blessing that you have and the responsibility you have and the destiny you have. Rebecca, Isaac loved her and they had a, they, you know, all's well that ends well, but they had, a, they had a rough go of it for a while and it resulted in Jacob fleeing home because of the bad advice of his mother. Um, so Jacob is on this journey. He looked and saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep were lying there beside it, for from that well they watered the flocks. Now the stone on the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered, then they would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place on the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where are you from? And they said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. And he said to them, Is it well with him? And they said, It is well. And here is Rachel, his daughter, coming with the sheep. And as Rachel gets there, um, Jacob realizing that this is his path back toward his family, he says, behold, it's still high day. Is it not time for the livestock to be gathered, water the sheep, and go pasture them? But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered, and they rolled the stone from the mouth of the well, then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep. She was a shepherdess. When Jacob saw Rachel... Now, he's learned how it operates from these men, and he, he sees Rachel coming, and it, it says that when he saw her, his mother's brother, his, his relative, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob went up, rolled the stone from the mouth of the well, and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother, or his uncle. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted his voice and wept. "'Jacob told Rachel that he was a relative of her father "'and that he was Rebekah's son, "'and she ran and told her father. "'So when Laban heard the news of Jacob, his sister's son, "'he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him "'and brought him to the house. "'Then he related to Laban all these things, "'and Laban said to him, "'Surely you are bone, and uh, my bone and my flesh.' And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. And Leah's eyes were weak, this translation says, but Rachel was beautiful of form and face. We'll talk about what this means, her her eyes were weak. Um, Other translations say that her eyes were beautiful. Uh, But we'll talk about that. He said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel, And Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than to give her to another man. Stay with me. Boy, that doesn't sound very romantic, does it? Well, better you have her than somebody else has her. But Jacob was smitten. Jacob was in love. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. Boy, that's a key to life. That's a key to Serving your spouse, that's a key to serving your family. That's the key to serving God. The more love we have, the less grievous the cost of that relationship is. Seven years of labor, but it seemed like nothing to him. Seemed like just a few days because he loved her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, for my time is completed, that I may go in to her. Laban gathered all the men of the place and made a feast. Now in the evening he took his daughter Leah, okay? No, I didn't misread that. It's Leah, and um, (coughs) brought her to him, and Jacob went into her. Laban also gave his maid uh, Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. So it came about in the morning that, without understatement, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, "'What is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel I served with you? Why then have you deceived me?' But Laban said, "'It's not the practice in our place to marry off the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one,' uh, meaning your, your honeymoon, basically, and we will give you the other also for the service which you shall serve me for another seven years.' Jacob did so, completed her week, and he gave him his daughter Rachel as his wife. Laban also gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her maid. So Jacob went in to Rachel also, and indeed he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served with Laban for another seven years. Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, and he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. I want to say two things before we finish reading the text. If you are a person struggling with barrenness, or you're a couple struggling with infertility, don't assume that that's the judgment of God upon you. In this case, God said, I will bless Leah with children. I will withhold Rachel from bearing children because God was working a purpose. Leah was not being treated right. And I want to tell you, God takes it very seriously when we mistreat people. We may think we're right. We may think they that, that they deserve it. But God is the judge. And we had better be careful before we mistreat someone who is made in the image of God. We better be cautious before we mistreat anybody for whom Christ died. Um, But if you're struggling with that, that doesn't necessarily mean God's hand is against you. In fact, it may be that God is working something far greater in your life than you can ever imagine. Leah conceived and bore a son and named him Reuben, for he said, Because the Lord has seen my affliction, and surely now my husband will love me. Then she conceived again, bore a son, and said, "'Because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, He's therefore given me this son also.' "'And she named him Simeon. "'She conceived again and bore a son, "'and said, "'Now this time my husband "'will become attached to me "'because I've borne him three sons. "'Therefore he was named Levi. "'And she conceived again and bore a son, "'and said, "'This time I will praise the Lord.' "'Therefore she named him Judah.' Then she stopped bearing. Now for the rest of the story, read Genesis 30 and 31. And it's a phenomenal story, but time will not allow us to read the entire story together tonight. I want to talk about three things this evening. I want to begin by talking about how we deal with pain. I want to talk about Rachel, who was the love of Jacob's life, and then I want to talk about Leah, who was the unloved woman. Now, this was a recipe for disaster to begin with, a man marrying two sisters. I want to say this. Um, every time I teach on this or a story like this, people say, well, d- is it okay with God if we have multiple wives or, or I've e- I'm even asked multiple husbands? Um, I think we go back to the original intent and there's never a shred of evidence that God's will for, his, uh, for, for mankind was ever anything but one man and one woman together till death separated them. Uh, there were times that God allowed it. Um, I mean, I'm not going to argue that point. There were times that God allowed it. But we also need to understand that, to my knowledge, uh, any time you have a man with more than one wife, uh, unless it's just mentioned in passing you always find that there was trouble as a result of that. Man is not designed to love two women. Man is not designed to, uh, to, to give to two or three or however many women what he has designed and made to give to one woman. And a woman is not designed to, to give uh, to a, a, a group of men what God gave her to give to her husband. So it always breaks down. There were always problems. We get to the New Testament and Paul says, listen, if someone's going to be a leader in the church, I want him to be the husband of but one wife. Now, a lot of churches say that Paul was saying, we don't want him to be divorced and remarried. But I don't think that's what the text is talking about. I think in cultures where um, all kinds of relationships were allowed, Paul said, if you're going to be a leader in the church, you need to be focused on what God intended from the beginning, uh, man and wife together in God forever. In fact, um, though Jacob married these sisters, later during the law of Moses, God would prohibit this type of thing where you marry sisters. Because he said, there, you know, it's, we always know there's going to be a conflict where there's more than one wife or more than one husband because we're not made to function that way. Um, but I'll tell you this, God said, when they are sisters, it's double trouble. The, the complications are manifold. And it's, so God just said, don't do that. It was against the law of God. Let's look at dealing with pain. Um, r- both of them dealt with pain. Um, Rachel felt the pain of childlessness while Leah felt the pain of unreturned love. Now, um, I'm saying this as an obvious statement, but the fact of the matter is, um, it doesn't matter. There are no storybook lives. I mean, there are some that may be close to it. It's easy for us to look at somebody else and say, boy, I wish my life was like, hers, or I wish my life was like his. We always have the tendency to think that life uh, is, I mean, uh, that grass is greener on the other side of the fence. Irma Bombeck got it right, I think, when she said, it's not that grass is greener on the other side of the fence. She said, I think it's more a case of grass is greener over the septic tank. And uh, she was trying to say, what you think is Wonderful, and what you think caused that wonderfulness is not always the uh, the, the right um, evaluation of the situation. So what we've got is two women, both of them dealing with pain, and this is a good lesson for us to remember. You need to be careful. I need to be careful that we don't fall into the trap of thinking that someone is not qualified to speak into our lives because they haven't had our experience. We, we should never, whether we're talking about uh, mistreatment in life or whether we're talking about uh, marriage problems or, or whatever we're talking about, job situations or career setbacks, we should never say, you don't understand because you haven't been through what I have been through. You haven't been in my situation. What we need to understand is that everybody, number one, has had painful experiences. And number two, we need to understand that we can't compare them. You can't say, oh, what you went through was nothing. I wish that's the only problem I had. But you see, something that is devastating to me, you know, bunk might handle easily. I mean, it may not be devastating to him at all, but something that would rip his life apart, I might have because of personality or disposition or experience or circumstances, I might be able to just take it in stride. It'd be rough, but I could keep going. See, you can't say the only people that understand me are people that have been through exactly the same thing I've been through. And you can't say this person's pain is less than my pain. We are all created differently. We all have a different disposition. We all have different hot points and, and flash points and weak points. So the bottom line is you may have a problem having children. I mean, you know, you're, you're barren. And you'd be tempted like Rachel to say, oh, if I was like my sister, I could be happy. But she doesn't know that her sister has a problem that's just as big in her mind. Yeah, she has children, but the father of her children doesn't really love her. You know, Leah could say, well, I've got children and my sister doesn't have any children, but at least Jacob loves her. You see what I'm saying? What we learned from, from Leah and Rachel is that we all have problems. And in our mind, our problem's bigger than anyone else's perhaps. But the fact of the matter is, we are broken people in a broken world. We all have this issue of dealing with pain and don't fall into the trap of judging the situation thinking that our pain is alike or one person's pain is greater than the other. It, it, it may be, it may be that a person's pain is greater than someone else's, but I'm telling you we don't have the ability to make that distinction. Now Let's, let's talk about the, the second thing and it is the idea of, um, of Rachel. Now Rachel was the love of Jacob's life. And I want to say this main thing. (laughs) This is the main thing I want you to understand about Rachel. Perfect lives are usually an illusion. It it is noted, I think that there are few things as amazing in the world as when a man and woman really love each other. I mean, I I really think that is truly amazing. So many times the pattern is you fall in love, you know, and you have the romantic encounters and the $10,000 honeymoon and, you know, the $20,000 wedding and everything. Oh, this is just so wonderful. But if you're like the average person, and of course I know none of our people are average, but if you're like the average person, if you're not careful, you will spend all of your time and money and all of your preparation for a wedding instead of a marriage. Our money and time and preparation ought to go into the marriage, not the wedding. Now, nothing wrong with celebrations, um, and nothing wrong with expensive celebrations, as long as, you know, th- th- daddy can pay for it. There's nothing wrong with it, or whoever can pay for it. Um, but I want you to know that there's a very very cold-hearted reality, and it is this, perfect lives are usually an illusion. I, now, let me go back to my original statement. I think when a man truly loves a woman, that is, that is beyond description. It is beyond description. Um, when a woman is truly in love with a man, when a, when a couple spends their life walking hand in hand together and their affection grows and their respect grows and their devotion grows. That is one of the most amazing things on planet earth. I want to tell you, it's so amazing that when God wanted to describe his kingdom, he chose the institution of marriage to describe it. See, we are to love the Lord as a bride loves her husband. And it said that the Lord loves us like a groom or a husband loves his wife. Paul's admonition to to the men of the church, love your wife as Christ loved the church. His advice to the women is honor your husband and we can use words like serve and obey, but in this culture, people get all bent out of shape over it. But he says to serve and honor and, and follow, respect your husband the the way that the church it, it would would follow the Lord. So we look at Jacob and Rachel, and even though um, there was the issue of him being tricked by his father-in-law, see, I don't, I don't understand why... Jacob stayed with that father-in-law so long. That that would have tipped me off. Something's not quite right. But even though there was that glitch with the deception of Laban, here's a man that has worked seven years. Seven years he has worked for this woman. And the Bible has one of the most beautiful romantic statements in it. He loved her so much that it was just like he was working a few days. Just, it, it, in, in other words, not, that didn't mean it wasn't hard to wait. It didn't mean that it wasn't seven long years of waiting. But it, it meant that his love for her was so great. He was saying, it doesn't matter what it cost me. I will gladly give seven years of service to have this woman as my own. Now, when we say that perfect lives are usually an illusion, I I, I need to be careful so that I'm not perceived as as cynical. I don't mean that marriage is overrated. I don't mean that there's no happily ever after. But I'm saying this, I, I I, I think perfect lives can certainly be blessed lives. I think there ought to, I mean, our homes ought to be a reminder of what heaven will be like. I mean, I really believe that it ought to be that way. But when I say perfect lives are usually an illusion, I mean it in this respect. Oftentimes we are upset about our life. Our husband isn't everything we want him to be. Our wife isn't everything we want her to be. And we go into marriage with unrealistic expectations and because our expectations are unrealistic, they're not met. And we have a tendency to think that woman, if I had that woman, I would be happy. If I, had, if I had that man, I would be happy. We have a tendency to think that, boy, if we had a house like theirs, we'd be happy too. Um, we, we, we tend to look at somebody that appears perfect on the outside, and what we don't know is that as blessed and glorious and wonderful as their life is, it might just be That they have that experience because they've worked harder than anybody else. They've worked harder than anybody else. Um, it, it, It will cost you to have a happy home. Now, let me say this: if you are not yet married, my advice to you is this: don't be deceived in your search. Do due diligence. Meet the family, you know, you know, meet the parents. Understand what's important to that family. Understand what that family value, uh, that, what those family values are. I cannot express to you the importance of good, solid, biblical mar- premarital counseling. Um, they, we have a. Uh, a course we follow here that it's designed to pick up red flags, and I just because you have a red flag, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't get married, but what it means is you work through those red flags as much as you can before. You say, well, are you saying we've got to agree on everything? Now, let me let me give you an example. During premarital counseling, one uh, the man might say, "I want six kids." And the bride-to-be says, I want three kids, okay? That is not a red flag. That's just a yellow flag. That just means, let's slow down, let's talk about this. Um, Whether you have three kids or six kids will probably be determined by the first kid you have, you know? Um, But the reason we say that's not a red flag is that a person that wants six kids, a person that wants three kids, they both want kids, Now, they may have a different idea of what the size of the family ought to be, but you can work through that. That's not a red flag. But I tell you what is a red flag. I want three kids, says the bride, and the husband says, I don't want any kids. That is a red flag. And you need to walk through that kind of stuff together. Don't be deceived by the person that's courting you to thinking that everything's going to be perfect. Can I tell you, say, oh, I know that. hes I've seen him on his bad days, or I've seen her on her bad days. But when you're courting, I want to tell you, you see the best bad days they'll ever have. Even when it's their bad days, it is the best they're ever going to handle that bad day probably. So you need to understand personalities. You need to understand things like love languages. You need to understand if you are a person that expresses and receives love by words or by actions or by physical touch or, um, you know, acts of service or or, or whatever it is, you need to understand how to speak a language. You need to understand how to speak a language. When I was growing up, I saw a movie on TV. I thought it was hilarious, but it was also heartwarming to me. I mean, I was too young to uh, you understand the dynamics of marriage and commitment. I was, I was probably, I don't know, 14 or 15, but uh, it was about a, a man, um, if I remember the story correctly, that uh, he, he was an American soldier, American GI in the closing days of World War II. And he had been shot down and had escaped. Uh, it was based on a true story and was trying to make his way to freedom. And he met a French girl that uh, was part of the resistance. And so she was helping him. In the course of the story, they fell in love. And the whole story was based on the fact that he spoke no French and she spoke no English. We had captions to know what they were trying to say. And it was just hilarious watching them try to communicate and not, they would get so close then just kind of go in a different direction. That was great for a movie, but it's not good for real life. So we've got to learn, it's not just a problem between French and English. It's a problem of love languages. So don't be deceived in your search. Don't deceive others. Now, looking at Rachel, she had many fine qualities, yet she was barren for years. She did eventually have two very special sons, and and one of them became prime minister of Egypt. Um, Let me say this, one more thing. We're going to move to Leah and and begin to wrap this up. Time and trust are usually linked together. You say, Pastor, do you believe in love at first sight? I believe in attraction at first sight. I believe in some circumstances you might even know that that person is meant for you at first sight. I mean, I I believe it's possible. But love at first sight, uh, I don't know. That's a tough one because love is something far deeper than we realize. And I think time and trust usually produce this thing called love. Now, let's talk about Leah, this unloved woman. Leah said, will I ever get justice? You know, this was her cry. She's having babies left and right. She was having um, all of her dreams come true, except now her problem is I am not loved. In an age that says, oh, what matters is sex, not love. Just, just let me have sex and, and I, I don't need love. That's such a cynical view and it's one that will eventually uh, disappoint profoundly. Just read Ecclesiastes. Solomon said, I went through a period of rebellion where I tried all of this, wine, women, and so on. He, he said, vanity, all is vanity. And she said, "Will I ever get justice?" Let me let me give you some suggestions. You say, "Oh, yeah, Pastor." Now, now, don't say it out loud here because somebody will hear you for sure. But there may be men or women here, and and this this can happen to men too. A man can feel unloved. Uh, um, you know, the, men's needs uh, are sometimes expressed differently. But I wish I I wish I had you know a $50 bill for every time, you know, over the course of 40 plus years of ministry, I've had a husband say, I love my wife. I work hard for my family. I just wish she would just for one time say, thank you for what you do. That was his way of saying, when will I get justice? When will I be loved? (coughs) So many times men and women feel unloved. It's, it's It's not due to a... A lack of sex, it's due to a lack of respect or a lack of, of, um, of, of, of true love. <coughs> if you're unloved, let me give you some suggestions very quickly. Number one, remember it's better to be done wrong than to do wrong. A lot of times when we're not being treated right in a relationship, we have a tendency to say, oh, I'll, I'll show him, I'll show her, and we end up doing things like using sex as a reward or using sex as, withholding sex as punishment. We, we end up saying if he's going to be insensitive to me, I'll be insensitive to him. If she doesn't appreciate me, I won't appreciate her. And guys, it, it will never, it's like ripping the scab off of a wound you want to heal. Every time we resort to that, we need to remember, and this is so difficult, it's better to be done wrong than to do wrong. I remember one time uh, here at the church, we were dealing with somebody over a contract we believe the contract said you should do this. They said, no, it doesn't bind us to that. We just couldn't, you know, we just couldn't get an agreement on it. And we didn't know what to do. We didn't want to go to court. We, but it looked like it was our only option. We prayed and prayed. And I believe God gave the elders and the pastors uh, real wisdom. And we said, we're going to state our case and we're going to tell them, this is what we believe you ought to do. And then after we've done all of that, made our convincing arguments, we will say, now you decide what should be done. To those people that were opposing us, you decide what to be done. You say, that's crazy. Well, let me tell you what we thought. We thought we want to reflect Christ. We want to do what Jesus would do. And the bottom line statement that we came up with. Yes, we're running the risk of being done wrong. But this is what we said. It's better to be done wrong than to do wrong. It's better to be done wrong than to do wrong. Because if you are done wrong, God comes to your defense. Now, it doesn't mean it's always going to work out like you want it to. That situation for us, we kind of met in the middle and it didn't, we didn't get what we thought we deserved. But, we got more than they wanted to give. And what, what we understand is that when we're done wrong, God comes to our defense. But when we do wrong, God will fight against us. So don't be afraid to say, I'd rather be done wrong than do wrong. Don't take up offense against your spouse. Let God deal with it because God will deal with it if you'll let him. Number two, if you are feeling unloved, keep reaching out. Don't say, I'll treat you the way you treat me. It will go further and further amiss. Number three, and I know this is so difficult, but refuse bitterness. You say, Pastor, how do I refuse bitterness? It's it's ingrained the way I'm being treated. The only way you can do it is to let it be a fruit of the fullness of the Holy Spirit Ask God to help you refuse bitterness. Then we need to rejoice in our blessings. See, when you're being done wrong, like Leah was being done wrong, she couldn't rejoice in her husband, but she could find some things to rejoice in, and she rejoiced in her children. Um, Number five, ultimately find your resolution in God. And what we see is that when she agreed to do that, God responded to her mistreatment. And I hope I'm saying this the right way. Number two, God gave her children to sustain her. And number three, God ultimately taught her to be satisfied in Him. Okay? God responded to her mistreatment. God gave her children to sustain her during this process until she could get to the point where, we, where she could realize that God was her ultimate satisfaction. And it's almost as though God was saying, Leah, I love you. Will you let that be enough? But my husband doesn't love me. I know, Leah. I know Leah, and I will deal with him, but will you let my love for you be enough? Now that brings us to the Christian life lessons. Number one, family ties do not guarantee fulfillment. Uh, They ought to, family ought to bring fulfillment, but there are many factors that can uh, uh, affect a home. And it takes two for fulfillment to really occur in a marriage. So just getting married does not guarantee fulfillment. Having children does not guarantee fulfillment. You may be doing everything right and still not own the heart of your loved one. As with Leah, you can eventually find happiness and fulfillment in God. You say, well, will they ever come around? Well, let me tell you, there's no guarantee of that. There, there's no there's no guarantee of that. You can go to your grave having done everything right and still not having the issue that hurts you resolved. But I want to tell you, when you follow these instructions, it ups the percentage, it ups the likelihood that those problems can be resolved. You know, let me just, let me just give you a little sampling of what was going on in Jacob's life. When it came time... For Jacob to die, uh, Rachel had died and she was buried here. Uh, or, um, yeah, Rachel had died. She, w- she was buried here in, in Bethlehem. And when Leah died, she was buried someone else because of their journeys. It's almost as though Jacob finally kind of wrapped his head around this. And when it ta- came time for Jacob to be buried, you would have thought he would have said, bury me next to Rachel. But you know what Jacob said? He said, bury me next to Leah. Now I know you say, oh great pastor, you're telling me I'm going to get paid back after I'm dead. Most of the stuff we're going to get in way of payback will be after we're gone. Because it's in heaven that things are set right. But I tell you, that's, that spoke volumes to those children. It was as though Jacob were saying, I didn't handle this right I didn't love this woman the way she deserved to be loved. I'm going to honor her with one of the greatest honors of our culture. I will be buried next to her, signifying my connection with her. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, pastor, you said men aren't designed to love two women and women aren't designed to love two men. It wasn't Jacob's fault. Well, I, you know, I understand what you're saying, but let me say this. Just because you're in a situation of difficulty like that, that doesn't excuse bad behavior. Jacob was so obviously favoring Rachel that it gave Leah a complex and and almost ruined her life. You've got to learn if things aren't exactly the way they want them to be, you've got to learn how to act right in a wrong situation. Here's the second thing I want to remind you of. Great couples and families let God show them how to deal with disappointments. God has a plan for disappointments. There was the miraculous intervention with Abraham and Sarah, with Isaac and Rebekah. Uh, both of those women were barren and God intervened miraculously. God, sometimes God will deal with the situations with miraculous interventions. Um, Sometimes God has another purpose, another plan. Uh, Ramona and I faced barrenness for years and oh, we were so devastated. I can't describe the hurt to you. And and if you've ever gone through that uh, thing with infertility, you understand it very well. But it went on for years and we ended up finally adopting a child. And when I held my first child, that, you know, that we adopted in my arms, every pain, every difficulty was, it, it then became a blessing to me because I knew unless we had, had that battle with infertility, we probably wouldn't have gone this path. And that path was the will of God. And I, I would go through a, whatever I had to go through to have the same result. What I thought was God's anger, what I thought was God's curse, Turned out being God blessing me, giving me a son I wouldn't have otherwise beyond our wildest expectations. Then we had other children and they were just as blessed to us and just as special to us. But I want to tell you I went for a long time thinking God had just mismanaged my life until I began to understand that God was putting something together that I couldn't imagine. He builds character with the passing of time. And when you're going through these difficult times, listen to me, Lois, I'm not just talking about infertility, but great couples let God show them how to deal with disappointments. I think of Hannah and Elkanah. We talk about Hannah, I think, in two weeks the mother of Samuel. What's a beautiful picture in the Old Testament is Elkanah comforting Hannah in her barrenness. He doesn't, he, 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 he doesn't minimize it. He doesn't marginalize her. He pours his heart out into her and he says to Hannah, I'm going to treat you better than 10 sons could treat you. It, it wasn't meeting the need of her life. Completely, but he was coming alongside and filling every void he could possibly fill and they were learning the quiet life of trust till God moves. Number three, God's redeeming, refining work operates simultaneously on several levels. Um, At the same time, when these women were going through intense pain, they probably didn't understand that the nation of Israel was developing And at the same time, God was preparing the path for Messiah. And on top of that, Jacob and Laban and Rachel and Leah and only God knows who else were being refined individually. Now here's the bottom summary statement I want to give you. When your world seems to be falling apart, we learned this from Rachel and Leah. When your world seems to be falling apart, it may really just be falling into place. I think so many times when we see trouble, we resent it with great bitterness. But let's remember, let me quote it to you one more time. James chapter one from the Phillips translation. Dear brothers and sisters, when all kinds of trouble and difficulty Disappointments and trials crowd into your life. Don't resent them as intruders. Number two, but welcome them as friends. I'm not going to sit give you a pep talk and tell you that you just got to have a, you know, a good attitude and you've just got to shake this stuff off and it could be worse. you got to have an optimistic attitude. Some of you are going through things that are gut-wrenching and it has to do with a sense of people that ought to be holding me up are letting me down. But I tell you this, God has a plan and God has a way to help you walk through that. I remember telling a lady that one time, God has a plan. He said, I've got a plan too. I want to kill him. But God has a plan. And God, when you think your life is torn apart, God has a way of making it come back together. And this is the promise we have as Christians on that day. And a lot of times in this life, Things are going to be set right because God is the God of justice. Pastor, one of the pastors is coming to dismiss us tonight and to pray with you. I'm sorry I couldn't be with you tonight, but God is working in your life. Lord, do your incredible work in our hearts. We give thanks to you and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen, amen. God bless you.